From Santa Cruz, California, I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Thanks so much for joining me. Scott Iman returns to the show this week. One of our foremost film historians, Scott Iman is the author of many books, including Print the Legend, The Life and Times of John Ford, Louis B. Mayer, Lion of Hollywood, Empire of Dreams, The Epic Life of Cecil B. DeMille, John Wayne, The Life and Legend, Hank and Jim, The 50-Year Friendship of Henry Fonda and James Stewart, Cary Grant, A Brilliant Disguise, 20th Century Fox, Daryl F. Zanuck and the Creation of the Modern Film Studio, and his new book, Charlie Chaplin vs. America, When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided. Scott Iman, welcome back to From the Bookshelf. Well, thank you. It's always fun to be here. I, I love your books, and I uh, always enjoy talking with you. And as I was looking at your uh, bibliography, you wrote a book uh, many years ago about Mary Pickford, but most of your books are all about men. Do, do you Are you not interested in writing about women as much? Au contraire. Uh, my first book, as I said, my first, that was my first book. The Pickford book was my very first book. Uh, and all my books are kind of, uh, I guess they derive from a respect for the work or I wouldn't sit down and write them. You know, be, I, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not one of those writers who writes about people I don't like. Yeah. Uh, I have to like the work in order to motivate myself to write the book. Uh, but you're right. I have, I have spent uh, uh, about 20 years writing about men which is why uh, I'm done for a while. My next book's going to be about a woman because I need to write about a woman. <laughs> I just do. <laughs> and, and and will that woman be Margaret Dumont? No, it will not be Margaret Dumont, nor will it be Blanche Eureka. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it'll be a woman, definitely. I haven't, I haven't quite made up my mind, but it'll be a woman. Yeah, oh, good, good. There are lots of great actresses to write about, I'm sure. Uh, I, I have a question about... Charlie Chaplin that you allude to in your new book, uh, Chaplin versus America, when art, sex and politics collided. When I first started to study film, which was back in the 1960s, they used to speak of the four great clowns, Harry Langdon, uh, Harold Lloyd, Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. And then about maybe 30 years ago, uh, Harry Langdon just fell into obscurity and nobody talks about him at all anymore. And now that's sort of happened to Harold Lloyd and people just talk about, there was two books about Keaton last year and your new book about Chaplin. And in your book, you say that you think Keaton is more highly regarded today than, than Chaplin. How, how could it happen that comedy could go in and out of style? Everything goes in and out of style. Writing goes in and out of, in and out of style. Uh, 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 clothes go in and out of style. People go in and out of style. Uh, anything cultural has a shelf life. And sometimes the shelf life repeats itself and comes back into style and people rediscover things. And sometimes people just fall off the end of the earth and 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 they become uh, uh, objects for uh, 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 scholar squirrels, as Gorbidal used to call them. <laughs> Someone says, oh my God, I just discovered Harry Langdon and he's wonderful. Uh, you don't get a lot of that anymore. Uh, <laughs> but I, I kind of like Langdon. I don't want to sit through three hours of Harry Langdon. Uh, yeah. I don't. He, he he's best taken in small quantities. But there are musicians like that as well that you don't necessarily want to listen to the complete works, but you'd like to listen to an album, say. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think Langdon's one of those people because he works with a small emotional range, you know. And there's the whole infantile thing, where he's not really an adult. 
he's right. he's, he's he's a he's a child in uh, a five foot seven inch body, essentially, uh, and that kind of creeps people out, I think, uh, uh, because of our modern attitudes towards sexuality and responsibility and all the other attendant qualities that adults are supposed to have, all of which are absent in Harry Langdon. <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> So it's it's a question of social uh, socialization and 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 differing uh, 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 taste as as the decades roll on. But you're right. Uh, uh, there were there were four clowns. That's the title of a Robert Youngson documentary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, rather good one, as I recall. I haven't watched it in 20 years, but I liked it at the time. Uh, and I still think Lloyd's a wonderful comedian uh, because he's just a brilliant, brilliant structuralist of comedy and discomfort really the fact that we just watched uh, safety last the other day on silent movie day uh on tcm and uh we both my wife and i both got completely wrapped up in it again for probably the seventh or eighth time uh in fact lloyd was my entry drug into uh silent movies when mm. I was uh, so i have a great deal of residual affection for harold lloyd but the fact that harold lloyd played what he played a nice guy, a nice middle-class kid, young man trying to get ahead in the commercial environment and find himself, I think works against him because he doesn't have any rough edges to be sanded off, you know? Yeah. Audiences like something a little off kilter because they're used to a little off kilter. We live in the age of, of, of uh, David Lynch and uh, Yorgos Lanthimos and, and other directors and artists who are, who don't play they're not playing to, they're not trying to hit the ball 200 yards down the middle of the fairway. You know, there's enough of that. We get enough of that in, in, in uh, Marvel movies. Uh, so we look for something off center in our comedy. And sometimes we overlook some pretty good stuff, you know. Uh, and I think Lloyd, I, I, I think Lloyd is still a master at what he did. What he did was less risky, I would say, than what Keaton did or what Charlie Chaplin did, you know. Lloyd avoided uh, a social commentary, except indirectly, you know, in terms of the world he he uh, he, he put on screen, uh, which was in the 1920s and early 30s, a very realistic depiction of middle class life, essentially. Uh, Chaplin wasn't interested in that. Keaton wasn't interested. In they were both much more. Uh, they projected their own version of reality onto the screen as opposed to reflected reality onto the screen. Of course, Lloyd, uh, physical danger was more of a, a, a physical risk was part of his comedy more than the others. Right, uh, right. Was trial by fire, trial by fire, not always physical risk, but trial by fire. That the Lloyd character has to go through hell and back in mm. order to become an adult, in order to become a mature man, in order to win the girl. Yeah, I, I was thinking about the Marx Brothers recently because I think the Marx Brothers have suddenly fallen into obscurity. They were very popular for not only their entire careers, but then in the 1960s and 70s, they had a huge revival. But I think today, when you look at the Marx Brothers, because of attitudes that affect Charlie Chaplin, too, um, one of the Marx Brothers is uh, uh, constantly chasing, physically chasing girls. One of the Marx Brothers has a dialect. My favorite dialect. Marx Brother, by the way. Harpo is my favorite Marx Brother. <laughs> yeah. It says something about my lack of character, but go on. And and Chico is a dialect comedian, and that's not something that people like today. 
And Groucho is also lascivious, and many of his jokes require uh, a, a context. You know, when he says, my friends, there's nothing like liberty except Collier's on the Saturday Evening Post. <laughs> Nobody... But you know what he's talking about to get the joke, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, also, the Marx Brothers are very overtly anti-convention. Uh, 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 you know, they're 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 the they're anarchists by 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 nature. All their comedy is based on overturning uh, respectability. Whether it's destroying the opera and the orchestra, swings from Il Travatore into Take Me Out to the Ball Game, <laughs> yeah. or what it may whatever. But it's all always uh, uh, aimed right at the uh, heart. And, and soul of middle-class society. And that's not always, that's again, that there's a reason that was attractive in the 60s and 70s. And there's a reason it's less attractive today. And also I think they're very, in their unsophisticated way, they're extremely sophisticated. You know, yeah. the uh, you know, that's why maybe the Three Stooges are more popular now when they used to be sort of thought of as low class. Yeah, exactly. The Three Stooges were in the, were in the uh, 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 steerage. You know, yeah. comedy steerage, really, for, for 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 decades. And I grew up, you know, I loved the Three Stooges until I was about fourteen, and then I put them away. And once in a while, I'll watch them on MeTV because the prints are so nice. And because I grew up watching the Three Stooges, they were sixteen millimeter prints, you know, that mm-hmm. Columbia sent out to individual TV stations. I was growing up in Cleveland, so I and I saw the same sixteen millimeter prints for fifteen years, and they got pretty choppy after a while. <laughs> But they look so good now. Uh, and sometimes I'll smile. I don't think I almost never laugh at the three students. I, I'll smile. You know, I like Curly because he's got energy. Larry's hopeless. And Moe's not particularly funny. He's just statistic and abusive. <laughs> but kids, kids love the three stooges. And large adult kids also never get over their love. You think comedy in general suffers in the uh era of home viewing i mean you you want to see them with 700 other people laughing right sure because because laughter is contagious much like COVID. Uh, (laughs) but no laughter is truly contagious and that's why lloyd is very watching harold lloyd by yourself you don't get it and you don't get chaplin and see keaton is not a laugh riot because keaton operates on a kind of in a kind of abstract level you know uh, you chuckle at Keaton and you marvel at Keaton, but he's not a laugh riot. There's no, there's, I can't think of an, a Buster Keaton equivalent to the feeding machine sequence in modern times, yeah. you know, which can destroy an audience uh, seeing it for the first time or the second time. Uh, Keaton's not like that. Keaton is is more like uh, uh, a surrealist. He's closer to Miro, you know, <laughs> than, than he is to a to a, 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 a realistic painter. Well, do you think uh, if you compare Keaton and Chaplin, do you think Keaton is a better actor? Uh, he made played more diverse characters certainly than Chaplin did. Well, Chaplin found his uh, stumbled onto a universal character. I don't think that was his intent. I think he was, as he writes in his memoir, he was just trying to put a costume on because they were shooting a movie and they needed him on the set in a half an hour. So he went in the prop room and threw something together. Uh, and I, I don't doubt it. I, I'm sure that's absolutely true because he did not use that character in vaudeville, an English vaudeville or an American vaudeville. Uh, he played a comic drunk usually in vaudeville, which he did several times in the movies because it was easy for him. And whenever he was stuck, 
he'd, he'd go into a drunk act, you know, because uh, he knew it worked and he knew he was good at it. Uh, but he threw the costume together immediately and lightning struck. It lightning struck with the uh, uh, Keystone, lightning struck with the audience in America, lightning struck with the audience all over the world. So he, and because he came from a background that would have had to climb up on a ladder to become impoverished, uh, really god awful uh, poverty. Uh, he was not inclined to simply cast that idea aside. He decided, okay, well, this is working for me, so let me see where I can take it. And before you know it, in a year or so, he's committed to the character, and the character is a worldwide phenomenon, and he stuck with it for over 20 years, until 1936, uh, modern times, at which point he kind of sidled away from it, except the Jewish barber and the dictator is sort of like the tramp, up until the ending when uh, he steps outside of the Jewish barber and speaks as Charlie Chaplin. Steps outside of the movie, really, doesn't he? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's he's a, he's he's talking uh, he's talking to the non-Jews of the world at the end of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, speaking for the Jews, on behalf of the Jews, to the non-Jews of the world, and to everybody else that was about to be slaughtered by Hitler. Well, let's take a moment and listen to that speech. Here's Charlie Chaplin uh, stepping out of character to give a speech at the end of his film, The Great Dictator. I'm sorry, but I don't want to be an emperor. That's not my business. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die. And the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate. Only the unloved hate, the unloved and the unnatural. 
Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke, it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you. You, the people, have the power. The power to create machines, the power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Then, in the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us all unite. Let us fight for a new world, a decent world that will give men a chance to work, that will give youth a future and old age a security. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power, but they lie, they do not fulfill that promise, they never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. Now let us fight to fulfill that promise. Let us fight to free the world, to do away with national barriers, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us fight for a world of reason. A world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. Soldiers, in the name of democracy, let us all unite! That was Charlie Chaplin from the film The Great Dictator, made in 1940. We are talking with Scott Iman, whose new book is called Charlie Chaplin versus America, When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided. Uh, Scott Iman, uh, as you point out in your book, uh, Charlie Chaplin paid a price for making that speech. There's usually a price to be paid for premature anti-fascism. And the great dictator is the ultimate example of premature anti-fascism. The the studios were reluctant to um, make films that would um, antagonize the German audience or what? It was, it was a top down thing. Uh, The, the motion picture, uh, uh, the Hayes office didn't want particularly anti, anti uh, fascist films made. The studios didn't want anti fascist films made. Uh, you got to remember all the guys that found all the Jews that founded the studios were one step ahead of the pogroms when they got out of Eastern Europe and came to America. Uh, so they'd seen this movie before as it were, <laughs> or they just looked at Hitler and saw the Cossacks. Here we go again. Uh, so they were disinclined to, rattle the cage of the Cossacks any more than they already had. Uh, there were a f- couple of exceptions. The Warners uh, stuck their necks out before anybody else. Uh, but really nothing much happened until 1940-41 in terms of the movie industry. Chaplin was ahead of the curve. And even in Europe, I mean, even after uh, Italy went fascist and Belgium went fascist and France went fascist, there was Neville Chamberlain uh, hunkered down in London, uh, trying to make a separate piece and appease Hitler. Uh, and nobody wanted Chaplin to make this movie, make The Great Dictator. They all thought it was insane. Absolutely insane. Uh, but Chaplin had always gone where his instincts took him before in movie making. He'd made two silent movies in the 1930s after talk, after silent movies were dead. And they were both hugely successful and financially profitable. So, and the audience had followed him in spite of the fact they were silent movies and nobody was making silent movies. So I'm sure in the, in his, the logical portion of his brain, he thought they'll follow me. And they did. And they did. The audience did follow him. The great dictator was a huge uh, commercial hit and very successful critically. Although a lot of people took exception to the final speech because he does step out of character and address the audience. At that point, it was the longest movie he'd ever made as well. Oh yeah, it's a hundred. It's two hours and four minutes. Two hours and five minutes. It's a long movie. And most comedies. One scene I could do without. I'm, I've always thought now, 
because at one point, just as the film was opening, because people said this movie's long, uh, and he said he sweated everything out of it, and if anybody had any, and if the, any of the writers had any ideas about what to cut, please let me know. And I've always thought the business with the coins in the in the cupcakes, you know, just before we we go to the uh, last seg segment of the picture, I've always thought we could do without the uh, business with the coins and the cupcakes. That's like <laughs> four minutes that I don't think really particularly. It's not funny, and it's not particularly necessary. You could still get the get the Jewish barber to. Uh, uh, to where where Hinkle's giving the speech, without that sequence, and that would take four or five minutes out of the picture. Now, is that going to make a huge difference? Not really. No, it's a long movie because he's he's balancing two separate narratives. Basically, he's balancing yeah. Hinkle narrative, the, the dictator narrative, and he's balancing the Jewish barber narrative. Uh, uh, do you think the studio heads were also concerned about the fact that they were Jewish in in your book uh, about? 20th Century Fox, uh, Daryl F. Zanuck and the creation of the modern film studio. Uh, Zanuck sticks out as being the only mogul who was not Jewish. And uh, th did they not want to draw attention to that aspect of their personalities? I don't think, I think the rational side of their brains realized that everybody pretty much knew they were Jewish and assumed they were Jewish. Uh, but I don't necessarily think they wanted to hammer the point home either because all of them tried to be as American as possible and their movies for the most part are as goyish as they could make them. <laughs> yes. The jazz singer is like the only movie that anybody can ever think yeah. of that really has a Jewish. Yeah. yeah. The Warner brothers kind of uh, work around the edges with Paul Muni and Edward G. Robinson, but I don't think Paul Muni and Edward G. Robinson are going to be stars at MGM. Yeah, I don't think Mayer would have uh, would have been attracted to what they had to offer. You know, I think the Warners would take a gamble on it because they saw aspects of themselves in actors like that. But, you know, Jimmy Cagney was pure Irish and that level of aggression and uh, don't cross me or I'll punch you uh, that uh, that Edward G. Robinson had along with Cagney. With Cagney, it was interpreted as uh, Irish from, you know, uh, 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 Lower East Side. Uh, with Robinson, it was uh, attributed to Jewish. But the characterization, their physicality is much different. But their attitude, the tone of their performances is very similar, it seems to me. But we're talking with Scott Eyman, and he's the author of many wonderful books. And his new book is called Charlie Chaplin versus America, When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided. Uh, uh, Clark Gable. I always wonder what would have been wonderful to see a movie with Clark Gable and Humphrey Bogart in it together. They would have been great together. Um, but do you think Bogart Not would have... Brothers, Not his brothers. No, no. Would Bogart have made it at MGM? Or is he a total Warner Brothers guy, too? Uh, or Bogart would never have made it at MGM. The only... I, I'm trying to think of who at Warner Brothers would have been highly successful at MGM. Uh, Ann Sheridan. Mm. Not Betty Davis. No. I mean, she and Mayer would have gotten into wrestling matches. One of them, only one of them would have walked away from. Uh, and it would probably would have been Betty Davis. Because <laughs> uh, she was a killer. Uh, not a lot. There aren't a lot of people who could have tra transitioned over to, uh, to MGM. MGM was a very rarefied atmosphere, you know. And, and Gable was kind of a blue collar guy. His, his his raw sexuality, the way he would appraise a woman, you know? Yeah. I can't think of another MGM actor who had that uh, that same dynamic. 
He was a one-off at MGM. Yeah. Well, maybe earlier, uh, now you make me think of John Barrymore in that scene in Grand Hotel when he sort of pats Joan Crawford on her butt, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but he was, Barrymore was always, uh, had that slightly uh, lewd, suggestive aspect to his character. Yeah. You know, he, 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 uh, he inhabited the role of Rue very well off screen and on screen. Yeah. Um, well, let's get back to uh, Charlie Chaplin. And your your book, uh, although you're, you, you, the title makes me think, makes a reader think you're going to just tell this one story that happens in 1952 or something. But you really, it's a full-fledged biography of Chaplin, I think, that you've written. And uh, is that what you set out to do? No, no, no. I wanted to, t- I wanted to concentrate on 10 years, but 12 mm-hmm. 12 years, 1940 to 1952. But, and that's the bulk of the book. Yeah. But I, 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 once I, once I figured out, once I thought about it, I realized I could not assume a 21st century reader knew the background of Charlie Chaplin, the poverty, the, 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 uh, the years in the, in, in the work, the Dickensian environment in the workhouse. Uh, learning to read and write in the workhouse, uh, uh, the tender mercies of the uh, Victorian childcare system. Uh, I don't. I couldn't assume they knew that his father had died at 37 of alcoholism, or that his mother was syphilitic, and uh, was a hopeless schizophrenic. Uh, so I had to. I, I had to basically do 30 or 40 pages of prologue to get me into the movie business. Yes, so the reader would know who this guy was before he got successful. And then at the end, uh, after he's kicked out of the country, I had to close the circle. You know, I, I had to bring him around through his last two pictures, through Switzerland, his, his years in Switzerland, and through his coming back to receive his Academy Award uh, to close the circle, you know. So, but that was not my intent at the time. The book is 400 pages. If I was, if I had set out to write a full-scale biography, it would be six or 650, frankly. Mm. I don't think I can write a a book about Charlie Chaplin in much less than that. But then I, I didn't want to do that book. I thought David Robinson's book was was very good for the most part. Uh, excellent, actually. Excellent. Well, uh, and there's Chaplin's autobiography, which is also about 500 pages mm-hmm. or something. Um, in in your prologue, I think it is to your book, you, you quote uh, an abandoned foreword to that autobiography. So that makes me think, how did you get that? And is there another version of his autobiography that there are many versions of everything he wrote uh because he was compulsive uh because he would write and rewrite and rewrite and uh, sometimes the 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 differences in versions are infinitesimal you know it's sometimes he uses an oxford comma sometimes he doesn't (laughs) (laughs) but it's he goes into another draft and other times it's it's radical you know so there's no there's no rhyme or reason to to what he th- would throw out or what he would keep, what he would de- finally decide to go with uh, in terms of a final draft. Same thing with his scripts. Uh, if you look at the scripts for his talking films from Great Dictator on, uh, they shift they shift less radically than the silent films do. Modern times, uh, his his original uh, and of course with a silent film he didn't write a script a shooting script per se. He would have an outline or what we would call an outline. Uh, 10 pages, 20 pages. But those outlines shift radically as he got closer and closer to production. And production was the uh, was the uh, the trial by fire for Chaplin. Often his, the finished film 
there there's a lot of resemblance to the outlines uh, of the silence and other times it really goes off into in, in quite different directions quite well, different. How, how are you able to see these alternate uh the chaplain estate has digitized everything they have hmm. uh when he uh, was kicked out of the country in 1952 it was a, a panic time because everything he owned was in uh california america and he couldn't come back well he could come back but he refused to come back the, uh, there's a uh, a week or two after he was kicked out of the country in September 1952, the INS had a meeting, an internal meeting, where they uh, uh, they they came right out and said, if he comes back, if he challenges the revocation of his reentry permit, we have to let him back in because he's never been committed uh, uh, of a crime, never been convicted of a crime, and that was the uh, the defining thing. The, that's how they justified deporting mafioso, for instance. They had yeah. to have been convicted of income tax evasion or running a string of girls or something, you know, uh, before they could be kicked out of the country. Uh, Chaplin hadn't been convicted of anything. Uh, he was simply regarded as a dangerous citizen. So uh, uh, the attorney general uh, pulled the trigger, but they couldn't have kept him out of the country if he had chosen to come back. Um, but his back was up. He was furious. Actually, he was enraged quietly enraged and uh he was uh, not about to uh, be any be any place where he wasn't wanted uh but all of his money was here his securities his investments his studio was here his uh, stocks and bonds were here and his film library was here in america it was all in california and i'm sure on that boat heading towards england after he got the notice that uh, he couldn't come back I'm sure he was uh, in some kind of emotional distress because here he'd spent what almost 40 years playing a dispossessed waif, a dispossessed middle-aged waif living on the streets without, uh, without any, any money or any structure or any support system. And I'm sure he could easily uh, look at the circumstances he was entering and figure this could happen to me again, not just when I was seven years old, but now, as a middle-aged man, uh, luckily, his wife was a citizen. She'd been born here, Una, and she came back and uh, did a yeoman job in uh, uh, cleaning out the house and all that and getting his securities and money out. Uh, and his brother, Sidney, uh, did a yeoman job in closing down the studio. It took a couple of years in closing down the studio. And it was Sidney who shipped the Chaplin archive over to Europe who took responsibility. So Chaplin wanted to throw a lot of stuff out. He wanted the movies. He wanted his negatives. That he knew. But he thought a lot of the paper could be tossed. And there's a wonderful letter from Sidney saying, are you crazy? You can't do that. How do you think Winston Churchill wrote his memoirs? He doesn't, nobody has that kind of mem memory. You do it by looking at, looking at your di diaries. You do it by looking at newspaper clippings. You do it by going to the record, the printed record. He said, and people are going to be interested in you long after you've shuffled off. Well, Sidney understood. Chaplin didn't understand. I mean, I think Chaplin understood that he was world famous and he would continue to be world famous. But I think he was looking uh, to cut his losses, you know, to, 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 to make the third act of his life as stress-free as possible. And it made more sense to just throw stuff out. Uh, and Sidney wouldn't let him throw stuff out. Sidney shipped everything over. 
and so they had all the stuff in the basement in Switzerland, the basement of his manor house in Switzerland, the Manoir de Bain. And it was organized and, and uh, kept in good shape. And some years back, uh, the uh, estate uh, uh, made an arrangement with the uh, Italian, uh, uh, Italian archive to digitize everything. So I, I proposed this subject to them. And they said, okay, the estate. And they gave me a password to the archive. And I just roamed around for 18 months, two years. Wow. And look for look, look for what I want, was interested in. And sometimes it was there. And sometimes what I wanted to find wasn't there. But something that was even more interesting than what I was looking for was there. Mm. Uh, so it was, a, it was a, I was a squirrel looking for, for nuts, basically. <laughs> well, uh, I want to ask you about autobiography because you had some experience with that. You what, many years ago, I guess it's fifteen years ago or so. Robert Wagner was here on from the bookshelf, and we had a lovely conversation. It was great to talk with him, and you uh, helped him with, I think, three memoirs that he's written, and um, and of course you've read, you know, you know you, you're a scholar. You've read everybody's film autobiography, um, and you know so much. So. Um, Chaplin in particular and Robert Wagner too how honest are autobiographies how reliable are they well that depends on who's writing <laughs> uh, my job uh, uh, with RJ was uh, uh, we saw the book the same way uh, and I wouldn't have done a book unless I thought he was going to be honest with me and that's that was a, that took a couple of weeks of just sitting and talking and talking about our lives, our mutual lives, his life, my life. The first time RJ and I met was here in Palm Beach. He came down because the reason he, he the reason he tapped me for this, he'd read my biography of Louis B. Mayer, Line of Hollywood. And as he told me, he said, usually when you read a book about people you knew, you don't recognize them. He said but you were writing about people I knew specifically. I was writing about uh, mayor's daughters, Edie and uh, uh, Irene. And he said, I knew Edie and Irene and you caught them. Exactly. That's who they were, What you wrote about them. That's who they were. So he was interested in talking to me because I'd been able to pull that off with two people. I never met Edie and Irene mayor's daughters. So we, we, we sat and talked here in Palm beach. Uh, and then, uh, uh, I went out to California for a while. We sat and talked there before anything was, uh, uh consummated contractually, you know, because I wanted to make sure that, uh, my name was going to be on the book. Therefore, it, I wasn't going to settle for anything less than what I would settle for when I, uh, with a book I was writing by myself. Have and you, are you in touch with him and, and, and how is he? He's fine. He's ninety three. He's doing great. We uh, we went, we go out and see him every summer in Aspen, and his wife Jill St. John. Yeah. They have a beautiful uh, house in Aspen, and we spend uh, we spend time with them on a regular basis. They become huge friends. Anyway, the I was what I was going to mention was the first time we met. Uh, uh, we were having a drink, and he pulled out his wallet and and pulled out a picture. And he showed it to me. It was a picture of his German shepherd named Larry. <laughs> so I pulled my wallet out and pulled out a picture of my German shepherd named Cooper. <laughs> he named his shepherd after Laurence Olivier. I named my shepherd after Gary Cooper. Uh, but we both had German shepherds uh, that we just adored. So there was already a synchronicity. 
It was pure happenstance, you know, what are the odds that we were both dog people and both German shepherd people? <laughs> well, that's neat. Will you tell him hello for me? I'll do that. I promise. That's great. Um, but what about Chaplin's autobiography? Is it um, reliable? Uh, it's as reliable as most autobiographies. Uh, there are a few weird things about it. Uh, and when he writes, for instance, when he writes about his uh, youth in the theater and uh, 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 in, in vaudeville with the Carnot Company in England, he, what he, he invariably makes himself a year or two younger than he actually was at the time at the, at, at, in the incident he's writing about. And it's too consistent for it to, been, to have been an accident. And what I think he was doing is try to make, trying to make himself seem more precocious. He was extremely precocious as, an, as a performer, as an artist, extremely. But he wanted to nudge that a little bit and make himself seem like some sort of uh, a brilliant native-born genius. So when he's actually doing something at the age of 16, uh, uh, he writes it if he, as if he's 13 or 14, you know. So when you cross-check stuff like that, you, you, you figure it out. Uh, but he's now, of course, so much of, of uh, all, all the English uh, theatrical trade papers are digitized. So you can check out when he was actually playing in what theater and then, you know, figure out the math from his birth date and see how old he was. And he's always nudging it to make himself a little younger than he, than he was, <laughs> uh, which I actually I find kind of endearing because it, 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 there's a vulnerability to that, you know. And 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 Chaplin's character, his screen character, was always very vulnerable. Uh, in life, he tried to project something a little less vulnerable, even though he was extremely vulnerable as a human being as well, or else he couldn't have made those films. Yeah, I mean, that... so to answer your question, yes, but <laughs> yes, it's, it's, certainly it's emotionally reliable. Uh, it's also very reliable in its kind of weird psychological tick he had. Uh, as I think I write in the book, he was an extraordinarily self-contained human being. There were only a few people that he really got, got close to. Douglas Fairbanks Sr., uh, his brother Sidney, Una, his last wife. I'm trying to think of anybody else. Not too many. Not too many. Uh, and when Douglas, Douglas Fairbanks was his best friend, they were very close. And when Douglas, but Douglas Fairbanks died young. Uh, he was 56, I think, when he died in 1939. And uh, nobody, he didn't insert anybody else to fill that emotional uh, 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 relationship of a best friend, a best male friend. There was nobody else. He would be tight with somebody for a year or two or three, and then he would drift away from them and substitute somebody else in a way that he never did with Fairbanks. They just bonded quickly, uh, almost as soon as they met in 1915, 1914. Fifth, no, it's 15, they met in 1915. Uh, and, the, and the relationship never really deviated from that. Uh, but, with, uh, but that was about it. That was his best friend. And when Fairbanks died, he did without a best friend, really. Uh, he had relationships of varying degrees of intimacy, but nothing remotely like what he had with Fairbanks. Uh, so only a few people, and I suspect... I suspect that's because very early on he learned not to trust a lot of people except number one, except Charlie, you know, he, he, he learned that he had to rely upon himself because there was uh, and Sydney because Sydney never failed him. Sydney was always there. 
when Charlie needed him. And if Charlie didn't need him, Sidney was still there, make, making himself available. Say, I'm over here if you need anything. Uh, right here, I'm, I'm, I love you dearly. I'm your brother. Uh, and by the way, would you write me a letter once in a while? Because I don't know what's going on. Uh, there's a, it's a refrain and all, and Sydney was a good correspondent and always writing letters. And Charlie was a terrible correspondent, rarely wrote letters. I mean, you had to blast to get a letter out of Charlie Chaplin. Uh, and so every letter Sydney, almost every letter Sydney sent him, he said, uh, you could write me back. He said, when I get a Christmas card saying from the Chaplin studio, it's like a knife through my heart, you know, oh. so that was, that was Charlie. He was very, very self-contained. And I must say, it comes in handy when uh, the entire uh, 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 security infrastructure of the United States is uh, is uh, climbing up your butt, which is what happened to him. There are some uh, books about Chaplin that portray him as a maybe as a jealous uh, type. I mean, he doesn't mention Stan Laurel in his book. Um, he uh, there are people who say that he that Keaton outshined him in the scene in Limelight, so he cut it down so that would be more him and less Chaplin. That's not true. That's, that's not true. Uh, that was a, that movie's made in a, that scene is made in the cutting room because it was largely an improv. Nothing was written. He and Keaton would talk about uh, what they, what, what Chaplin wanted because it was Chaplin's movie and Keaton was a hired hand, uh, but they would work it out together. And, and Chaplin was very uh, respectful of Keaton's gift. Otherwise, why hire him? Um, and it was worked out. It, it, they shot for eight, nine days on that scene, which lasts, I don't know, six or seven minutes. You know, so there's a huge amount of film. So the scene was uh, uh, made in the cutting room. It wasn't like shot in uh, two or three long takes. It's a cutting room scene. Uh, and I asked Jerry Epstein, who was the associate, uh, Chaplin's assistant on Limelight, about that rumor that, you know, Chaplin basically cut out some of Keaton's best stuff. He said, it's simply not true. He said, uh, the biggest laugh Keaton gets with the uh, the sheet music falling and uh, falling off the piano that he's trying to play and the sheet music starts to fall. And we cut away to Chaplin. We cut back to Keaton and the sheet music still falling. He said, that was all one take. It was all one take. He said, and Charlie made it, got a bigger laugh out of it by making it a running gag as opposed to just letting the camera run. And it's true. It, each, each successor shot of the sheet music continuing to fall is funnier because Chaplin cuts away and then cuts back. Uh, he said, it's not true. He said it was, it was a very collegial atmosphere and, and it was a two old pros working together in, in, in great harmony. Well, um, the, the, one of the, I think the conclusions that I draw from reading your new book, Chaplin versus America, uh, when art, sex and politics collided is that sex, as much as politics, had um, to do with Chaplin's um, problems in America. Um, uh, do you think that's true? Is it? Um, I mean, uh, is that oh, what happened? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no question. No question. Because look, uh, uh, the Hollywood Ten get called to testify before Congress in 1947. There's a reason those 10 people were called before Congress. The FBI had an informer in the Los Angeles Communist Party. They had a roster of members. They knew that all the, the all, every one of the Hollywood 10 either was a member of the Communist Party or had been a member of the Communist Party at one time. So they were all ready to be charged with a, 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 
whatever crime they refused, whether they took the fifth, whether they did this, whether they did that, the FBI had them because they knew they were members of the Communist Party. So by the same token, they knew very well that Chaplin was, had never been a member of the Communist Party, uh, had never donated a dime to the Communist Party. Uh, and and I, I was thinking at one point of calling him in the text of the book a champagne socialist, but I decided not to because it's it's it was a, a way, it sounded too dismissive of what was his very real commitment to social justice, which he put on the line over and over again, culminating in the Great Dictator. Uh, and that's that it just trivialized his commitment. So I didn't use the term. But if I had to, if I had to, if I had to characterize his politics, that would be close. That would be close. Uh, but he was never even remotely a communist because for one thing, he's far too independent and spiky a character to 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 be part of any any governmental system that mandated obedience. <laughs> he wasn't going to be obedient to anybody. Is mm-hmm. is what he because even his own likes and dislikes could shift back and forth, you know, like everybody else. Sometimes you want steak, sometimes you want fish. <laughs> If you if you're if you're in Moscow, you eat what they they'll give you. <laughs> so, uh, what was your question? <laughs> so, uh, I I guess my question is um, what? I mean, I know that in today's kind of Me Too era, uh, we look at people. Oh, sex! It was about yes, it was about yeah. the, 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 what the actual hanging offense was. It was a combination of. A real, if you read the column, the conservative columnists who were pillaring him from, uh, slagging him from pillar to post for over 10 years, beginning before the great dictator, Edda Hopper, uh, Westbrook Pegler, Ed Sullivan, uh, there were two or three others. I mean, this went on on a continuing basis for over 10 years and basically poisoned the well of public opinion about Chaplin. along with the paternity suit that he uh, went through in 1942-43, uh, where he took a blood test, and which proved he was not the father of the child. But he lost the case anyway. That's how unpopular he was, you know. And the court, yeah. California courts refused to hear his appeal. That's how ugly this was, uh, how, how, how much public opinion it turned against. Uh, because a blood test was not dispositive in, in 1942 California. It didn't become uh, definitive for three or four years after that, uh, after which it would have been a moot point because he, the blood test proved he wasn't the father. Goodbye and good luck to you, you know. But his timing was bad. Uh, he had had a relationship with Joan Barry, uh, but it had ended before the child was conceived. And she came after him and named him as the father of the child. And that was a huge deal. I mean, the Hearst Press slagged him for uh, several years. Uh, the Chicago Tribune press slagged him, but the conservative uh, syndicates slagged him. And uh, it was difficult. And then he married Uno O'Neill, who was 18 at the time, and he was 53, uh, which seemed to confirm the worst, you know, of the narrative. Uh, of course, they stayed married for the rest of their lives and had eight children together, but that was all in the future. Nobody knew. And then he made Monsieur Verdoux which, as I write in the book, was a black comedy before black comedy was invented. Mm-hmm. And definitively the wrong movie at the wrong time for the wrong audience. And his first flop, it was a financial flop. It was a uh, critical flop. 
it was regarded as proof positive that he was that he was a misogynist uh, and completely out of step with uh, mainstream America, which in fact he was, which he was. He always was, right? He made silent movies. With this- yeah, he always was. He always was. He was very much, he considered himself, no matter how rich he got, he regarded himself as a damaged child and a member of the underclass. Always. And that never changed uh, to his dying day as an extremely wealthy man in Switzerland. Uh, and he understood the, the, the dichotomy and he understood the, uh, uh, the difficulty of that on some level. But that was the way he felt inside, you know. Uh, and the character that he portrayed on screen was a, uh, uh, an outgrowth of that inner conviction of who he was at his core. At his core, he was not a rich man living in Switzerland. At his core, he was a dispossessed child. To get back to the Me Too thing for a minute, a, a lot of, uh, you know, now that we are so enlightened and when we look at older films now, uh, we find it hard to tolerate certain things. Uh, and even filmmakers who are long gone, like Jerry Lewis, for instance, um, have been criticized for their behavior. I mean, two women accused Jerry Lewis of rape, which is a a lot different than anything that had happened in Charlie Chaplin's life. And uh, of course, Woody Allen, who, um, his film career has kind of ended as a result of accusations, even though he's been, like you say, with Una O'Neill, Woody Allen has been married to Sun Yi for 25 years or something. And it's obviously the love of his life or whatever. Um, why hasn't it happened to Chaplin? How come people don't say, oh, I'm not going to watch that pedophile's films? I think because it's a long time ago. I think in that sense, time has worked to his advantage. I, I, I think people you know, don't know all the, uh, the grim details. Of, and in all honesty, uh, he didn't specialize in young girls. There were a lot of age-appropriate women, too. He specialized in women is what he specialized in. <laughs> uh, and some of them were, were uh, below uh, 18. And some of, and the considerable number of them were far, far past 18. There were a lot of women in their 20s and 30s, some famous, some not. Uh, so it's not, it wasn't an exclusive thing with him. Uh, he was a, and as he wrote in his memoir, though, and he was very honest, and this is true, that he was only really uh, responsive to uh, the idea of recreational sex when he was between pictures. When he was on a picture, he worked all day at the studio, left about 7 or 8 p.m., went home and collapsed in bed. That was it. There was nothing nothing extraneous going on. But he would take three and four and five years off between pictures. So right. <laughs> there was there was there, there were ample there was ample opportunity for uh, for entertainment, shall we say? Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I think the the uh, underage thing has been slightly overemphasized. Two of his well, three of his four wives were were underage. Uh, so I guess there's a proclivity there. Except no, I'm sorry. Two of his three of his four wives were underage. Uh, Una was of age; she was 18. Uh, but not by much. Um, he so, obviously knew her before she was 18. Uh, he what? He must have known her before she was 18. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly they were dating, but I mean, I don't know to what extent the relationship had gone. You know, nobody does. Well, in, in, in terms of the troubles he had, who was the worst enemy, uh, Hedda Hopper or J. Edgar Hoover? 
Well, the guy that pulled the trigger on kicking him out of the country was James McGranery, who was a Democrat. Mm. He was Harry Harry Truman's attorney general at the end of Harry Truman's uh, uh, term, 1952. Uh, and while McGranery was a Roosevelt New Deal guy, uh, he was also an ardent Catholic. And he was offended by, by uh, certainly offended by Chaplin's relationships with the relationship with Joan Barry, and probably also offended by Monsieur Verdoux if he'd gone to see it. You know, uh, it wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have uh, he wouldn't have found it amusing in the least or or uh, uh, in a, stimulating in the least intellectually. So uh, McGrainer was going to pull the trigger. Beyond that, J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover was. I mean, Hoover knew very early on that Chaplin hadn't been a member of the Communist Party. But if you read the FBI file on Chaplin, every 18 months, two years, he would hammer the Los Angeles office about about investigating Chaplin all over again, like they were going to find something they hadn't already found in the previous two or three investigations. <laughs> and uh, then he would get, uh, and you know, by in 1948, 49, the INS got involved, and basically they were waiting for him to leave the country because they couldn't get him any other way, uh, except by revoking his reentry permit because he'd never become an, a citizen, which was a big deal. Uh, for the right wing press, because that was they were able to run with that and imply that he was somehow un-American because he had chosen not to be an American, uh, which was basically unjust, because as his friend Max Eastman said, they didn't they didn't want to understand what was going on with Charlie. He said Eastman said Charlie was born in England and became rich and famous in America. If he'd been born in America and become rich and famous in England, he wouldn't have become an English citizen either because Chaplin to his core believe that nationalism was insane, that uh, that the French being obsessed with uh, uh, their Frenchness and the Germans being obsessed with their Germanness and everybody being obsessed with whatever their national uh, national uh, place of, of uh, residence was, was basically the, uh, the foundation upon which wars were built. And without that, people are much less likely uh, to kill each other. Because they're not preventing, they're not they're they're not protecting their turf, emotionally, psychologically. He he said, I, "If if America was ever invaded, I would fight. I would sign up and I would fight. I don't know what good a comedian's going to do, but he said that." Uh, and both of his sons uh, were in Patton's army, Third Army, uh, during World War II, and Sidney saw combat, uh, and it was horrible. Uh, and it all just confirmed his father's feelings about about war and nationalism. But uh, that was his core belief. And he always said, I'm, I'm a citizen of the world, uh, which only antagonized uh, conservatives. Well, then, your, your new book, Charlie Chaplin versus America, when art, sex, and politics collided, Scott Iman, it, it, does it offer a commentary on our current political situation at all? Oh, sure. No question. No question. <laughs> if you take nothing away, from the book, except uh, uh, one thing, uh, that what is happening in America today has happened before. And it will undoubtedly happen again, unless we're swamped this time. Uh, I have this theory that this kind of America for Americans uh, uh, thing is like staph infection in the body politic. And there's no, uh, there's no antibiotic that uh, wipes it out completely, that it goes dormant for a generation or two, and then it comes roaring back all over again. 
because it's this is just a sort of uh, a new iteration of, of the blacklist era, except instead of hunting for communists, we're hunting for uh, 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 transvestites, we're hunting for drag queens, we're hunting for people who read things that should that shouldn't be read. Uh, it, the targets have changed, but the actual motivating attitude has not changed. And there's something there's something intrinsically uh, maybe it's not intrinsically American because the same thing is happening in other spots around the world. It's happening in Italy, uh, a few other places. So maybe it may, maybe it's not it's not something uh, uh, peculiar to us, but it's certainly happening, and it's happened before, and it's happening again. And I I that's one of the one of the advantages of taking a long view, which you have to do if you're going to write serious history whether it's uh, military history or show business history or or uh, political history you know you see recurring patterns of uh, uh, things occurring 30 and 40 and 50 years apart when the people that provoked the last iteration are long dead in their graves and here we go again nevertheless here we are again you know? and that's what we're going through now well uh your new book is hollywood history world history social history all all combined and and congratulations on it. it's a great book charlie chaplin versus america when art sex and politics collided scott iman thank you so much for spending some time with us on film the bookshelf i appreciate it it's always a great time anytime you call on here that's it for this week's from the bookshelf i hope you enjoyed the program and we'll come back and see us again next time in the meantime, you can check out our website at fromthebookshelf.com. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts. You can even get your smart speaker to play From the Bookshelf by saying, Alexa, play Gary Shapiro's From the Bookshelf. And she will. Until next time, for From the Bookshelf, I'm Gary Shapiro. Take care. See you soon. <laughs>